church? All right. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, maybe you're just joining us for the first time, over the last few Sundays, we've been working our way through probably the most famous sermon ever preached. And of course, we're talking about Jesus's sermon on the mount. And the reason we're doing that is to answer um, a seemingly simple yet very foundational question, which is, what is real Christianity. For the first half of our series that we've been calling The Way of Jesus, we asked, who is the real Jesus? So now what we're really doing is asking, well, how do we really follow Him? And, and what we've seen so far as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount is we've learned what Christianity really teaches, or, or the other way to think about that is, is how people who follow Jesus should think about religion, sex, money, and community. And today we're going to see what it teaches us about the topic of prayer. So our question, our guiding question this morning is, what is real Christian prayer? So let's just start by reading Jesus' answer in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. This is where we're going to hang out today. Here's what Jesus says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I imagine that many, if not most of you, are pretty familiar with the last five verses of that passage, what Christians have historically called the Lord's Prayer. And since I just told you the whole point of this teaching is to try to figure out what the nature of prayer is, it would be very tempting to just skip verses 5 through 8 and start right in verse 9. I mean, Jesus literally says there, pray then like this. Seems like a pretty good starting point. However, I don't think that is the best way to approach this. And apparently Jesus didn't either because he had quite a bit to say before he jumped into that. If we truly want to understand Christian prayer, if we want to reap its benefits and become better at practicing it, we have to start with two things that are much more foundational, our audience and our motivation. So let me explain what I mean by those two things just by, by way of a personal story. When I was a junior in college, I began taking Spanish classes, and I found that I really excelled at it. And, and what I mean by that is most of the other students, we all made good grades. It wasn't a matter of like not making good grades. But most of the other students didn't really have much of an interest in like learning proper pronunciation or practicing their conversation skills or growing their vocabulary. But I did. I loved that stuff. And, 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 I, and the reason I loved it and the reason I think that I thrived in it is not because I was more intelligent. It wasn't because I was harder working. It wasn't even because I had some natural aptitude for languages. It simply came down to I had a better motivation and a better target audience than most of the other students in the class. And here's what I mean. The year before I took these Spanish classes, I had traveled out of the country for the first time ever down to South America, down to Peru, uh, with a church missionary group. And, and while there, I developed some really close friendships 
with the people I was serving alongside, the people we were serving, and really just develop this passion for the people and the culture. The only problem, of course, was this barrier between us of language. I didn't know their language, and so it was very hard to communicate. So when I returned from that trip, I just had this passion burning inside of me that I'm going to solve that problem. I'm going to learn Spanish. And that's why I thrived in Spanish class while most of my peers just skated by because their audience was a professor and their motivation was pass the class, fulfill a requirement. My audience was people whom I loved and my motivation was to know them better so I could deepen our relationship and understand them and their culture better. And that's ultimately how we have to approach prayer. So many of us flounder in prayer because we treat it like so many high schoolers treat math class, and no disrespect to math class. I actually like math, but we know how this goes. I don't understand it, don't know why it matters, don't care. Just give me the formula so I can plug it in and pass the test. But learn, did I hear clapping? Is that, (laughs) I apologize for any math teachers in the room. Math does matter. (laughs) Learning to pray, though, is much more like learning a new language. If you actually want to become fluent in praying, you have to approach it with the right audience in mind and the right motivation in your heart. Only then are you actually going to care enough about it to learn the basic grammar rules and the basic basic vocabulary that are going to give you a foundation to thrive and grow in your prayer life. And that's why Jesus did not begin his teaching by jumping straight into his model prayer. And that's why I want to start at the beginning of this passage and answer two foundational questions to get us started. Number one, Who do we pray to? Number two, why do we pray? There's our audience and our motivation. After we answer those foundational questions, we'll be ready to actually look at the Lord's Prayer itself and answer our final question, which will be, what does real Christian prayer actually look like? So those are our three main ideas today. Who do we pray to? Why do we pray? And what does it actually look like? So let's start with that first question. Who do we pray to? And I realize that since we're talking about language and grammar and stuff, I probably should say, to whom do we pray? So for all of you grammar nerds, I will not end that sentence on a preposition. The obvious answer, so the the who question, the obvious answer to that question is God. But if that's all we say, then, then we might be talking about prayer, but we are not yet talking about Christian All kinds of religions teach that we pray to God. The question is, what is he like? What do Christians actually believe about him? And entire libraries have been written to try to answer that question. The whole Bible is one long answer to it. But since I only have about 30 minutes, what we're going to do is just focus on what we can glean from Jesus' words in this passage, Matthew 6, 5 through 13. And what I want to do is start by seeing what Jesus tells us that God is not. What is he not like? So you can look with me in Matthew 6. Let's start in verses 7 through 8. Here's what Jesus says. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. First thing to understand about that, Jesus is not condemning just long and repetitive prayers in general. We know that because the Bible is filled with long and repetitive prayers. You can just read through the book of Psalms to figure that out. What he's critiquing here is a mindset or an attitude behind certain practices of prayer. That's why it says in verse 7 that the Gentiles think that they'll be heard for their many words. It's the thought behind the actions that's really the problem. And the root issue with their thinking is that it betrays a very low view of the God to whom they're praying. Think about what verses 7 through 8 teach us 
about the God to whom the Gentiles is praying, or at least what they think about Him. Apparently, this is the kind of God who hears prayer not out of like genuine love and concern for the person praying, but simply because they nagged and annoyed Him so much with their many words. They think they're going to be heard just by annoying Him with their many words. Also, apparently, this is the kind of God who doesn't really love us enough to know our needs, but must be informed of them. That's why Jesus says, your father's not like that. He already knows what you need before you ask him. So, so the, the bad prayer practices of these Gentiles are rooted in a belief in a God that is weak, uncaring, impersonal, and you might even say capricious and cruel. Because he's the kind of God who doesn't know us, doesn't love us, but he does enjoy making us jump through hoops to get what we need. And Jesus is very clear here. Our God is not like that. So again, the question is, well, then what is he like? And we've actually seen the answer all over this passage. Over and over, Jesus calls God Father. Now, I imagine that doesn't sound very shocking to you. It's it's very normal and routine in Christian circles to refer to God as Father. But it is normal and routine precisely because Jesus himself made it that way through his teachings like this one on the Lord's Prayer. But before Jesus came along, even even though the Old Testament did teach that God was a father figure and Jews of Jesus' day definitely believed that, if you go through the historical sources... Almost no Jewish person actually directly and personally referred to God personally as their father. What what was much more common for Jewish people of that day was to approach God in prayer by by just piling up all these superlatives. So I'll just, let me give you an example. This is a real beginning to a Jewish prayer. They would start something like this, blessed, praised, and glorified, exalted, extolled, and honored, magnified, and lauded be the name of the Holy One which is a fine way to begin prayer. But imagine being used to praying like that and hearing prayers like that, and then, and then Jesus waltzes in and just says, Father. Not only would that shock you, it most likely also would have offended you. How, how dare you approach the holy creator and sustainer of the universe with such familiarity? It, it would be like if we traveled to England and got to have an audience with the king of England. And instead of bowing down in respect, we gave him a bear hug. That would be absurd, right? Not only would we just be giving the British people one more reason to think that Americans are uncultured, also the royal guard would tackle you and you would be barred from ever entering the country. Again, rightfully so. But, but what's really shocking about this is not only does Jesus approach God as his, old, as his intimate and familiar father, he instructs his followers to do exactly the same. Now, I think a number of teachings on the Lord's Prayer, including my own in the past, would just usually like end this idea right here. And the reason is obvious. We we live in a culture that very much views God as, as if he exists at all, he's distant and he's unapproachable, he's mysterious, maybe even a little mean and grumpy. So it's very important to remember he is our loving Father, which of course is true. I just spent a few minutes telling you that, but it's only half true. When Jesus actually begins his explicit teaching on how to pray in verse 9, he says this, pray then like this, our Father, so we've got that part, but he goes on here, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which just simply means may your name be honored as holy. So Jesus is teaching us here, we don't just simply pray to a Father, that's true, we pray to a heavenly 
and holy Father. And what that means is that the God to whom we pray is simultaneously close at hand and yet far above. He is personally knowable and yet beyond comprehension. He is drawn to dirty messes like us and yet is infinitely perfect and pure. And I think that most Christians tend to approach God in prayer as either one or the other of those ideas, but very rarely as both. And that is where we so often start prayer off on the wrong foot. If we approach God mainly as our loving and personal Father, we may regularly experience a sense of His love and closeness and approval, but have a much harder time experiencing awe and submission to His majesty and His grandeur and His glory and His authority and His sovereignty. If, on the other hand, we approach God mainly as heavenly and holy, we may find it very easy to tremble in His presence and recognize our own smallness and unworthiness, but very rarely feel like we have a close and safe and loving relationship with Him. So if we want to discover or maybe rediscover joy and awe in our prayer lives and, and, and not just feel obligated to pray, but actually want to pray, if we want that, we need to begin by remembering that the person to whom we pray is the heavenly and holy creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge of the entire universe. And yet, he is also our personal, loving, and attentive father. So that's who Christians pray to. We've answered our first foundational question. Now we need to ask our second big question today, why? Why do we pray to this heavenly and holy father? What's the point What's the benefit? And so, as with, as with most questions that we ask about Scripture, there's just not enough time to give you every answer in one sermon. So, there's probably hundreds of good reasons to pray. I just want to drill down into what Jesus says here. Again, we're in Matthew 6. This time, let's look at verses 5 through 6 to discover what Jesus tells us about why we should pray. Here's what He says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So according to Jesus himself, in his most detailed and important teaching on prayer, one major reason that we pray is to receive a reward, which if I had to guess is probably not the answer you were expecting because the whole idea of pursuing something to earn a reward seems to be on the surface antithetical to true Christianity, right? I mean, Christians are supposed to be selfless and sacrificial. We're supposed to do things for the glory of God and the good of others, but certainly not for our own benefit, right? And then the gospel. We talk about the gospel all, right, all, all the time. The gospel is about God's free and unearned grace, and so it seems like rewards have no place in a discussion about the gospel. Now, there are, of course, kernels of truth in all those statements I just made, but all of those statements ultimately betray not only a misunderstanding of Christianity, but also a misunderstanding of the nature of this reward. And, and to explain what I mean, I just want to read you a quote from a book called The Weight of Glory. This was written by C.S. Lewis. I know you've, you've heard us quote him before. You're probably familiar with him. He's known as the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. Very smart man, former atheist, become Christian. Here's what he says about rewards in Christianity. He says, We must not be troubled 
by the unbelievers when they say that this promise of rewards makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it, and it is quite foreign to the desire that ought to accompany those things. He's going to give us some examples. Money is not the natural reward of love. That's why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not a mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to earn a rank is a mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. And here's how he summarizes it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, but they are the activity itself in consummation. In other words, what he's saying here is that true Christianity does not have a low view of rewards as long as they are, in his words, what we call proper rewards. So go back to the story I told you about me learning Spanish. For, for many of the students in my class, their reward for learning Spanish was pretty simple. I'm going to pass the class, I'm going to get a good grade, I'm going to earn a degree, which is fine, but none of those rewards have any real, natural, organic connection to the language itself. They are, like Sue S. Lewis said, just tacked on to the activity. But, but for me and for many other people who learn languages, the, the reward for learning the language was to be able to speak it to other people so that you could know them better and be known by them. That's the whole point of language. That is bringing language to its proper end, to its consummation. That is the proper reward for learning a language. And that's the kind of reward that Jesus is promising us here for prayer. Now, he never actually explicitly tells us what the reward is. To some degree, that's probably because there are different rewards for prayer, not just one single thing. However, having said all that, I do think if we pay close attention to what Jesus says in these verses, that there is this overarching proper reward that he wants us to see, a reward for prayer that really brings prayer to its desired and ultimate end, to its consummation. And to see it, you, you've really got to zoom out and focus on the, the, the contrast that Jesus is making between two groups of people in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, he's going to tell us about the hypocrites who pray with wrong motives, and then in verse 6, he's going to tell us about people who pray with, wrong, with right motives, excuse me. So you've got to see how he's, how he's showing how they're similar and yet not similar. So start in verse 5. He says that people who pray with wrong motives do so and have already received their reward. That's what he says about them. They have received their reward in verse 5. And if you go back to the sentence right before that, it's very clear what that reward was, that they may be seen by others. That's their reward. And, and it's not just simply that they want people to turn their eyes in their direction. To be seen by others, Jesus himself tells us what that means. Just back in this chapter in verses 1 and 2, he tells us himself that, that to desire to be seen by others really is a desire to be praised by others. That's Jesus' own words. So just put all that together real quick. People who pray with wrong motives, their reward is that they might be seen and praised by other people. Now hold on to that thought. Now let's look at verse 6, and I want you to notice the similarities with people who pray with right motives. Verse 6, here's how Jesus says you should do it. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So, so in both verses, in both statements, Jesus talks about being seen by someone 
and receiving a reward from someone. And it's clear that Jesus wants us to see those connections. So if you, if you follow the logic we've already established, if you follow the pattern we've already established, if the main reward for hypocrites is to be seen by others, is to be praised by other people, then following that same pattern, the main reward for those who pray with a true heart is to be seen by their heavenly Father, to be valued, recognized, and praised by Him. And that is ultimately why Christians pray. That is the proper reward of prayer, that we might be seen and valued by our heavenly Father. Now, we'll take a breather for a second. I heard somebody actually sigh. It's, it's good. It's good. Breathing techniques. Now, if you're like me, at this point, I would be wondering, well, doesn't God always see His children? Doesn't Scripture teach that he always recognizes and values and praises them? And of course, the answer is yes. Later in Matthew's gospel, as a matter of fact, Jesus is going to teach us that our heavenly Father sees us so well that he's even numbered every hair on our heads. So Jesus is not teaching us here that when we come to pray, that it's like God finally turns the TV off or puts his phone down and finally pays attention to us. That's not what he's saying. God is always paying attention to his children. But prayer is our way of coming to Him to explicitly and experientially receive that attention through the work of His Spirit. And if that sounds weird, let me try to explain it to you with a personal story. So a few weeks ago, um, my family and I traveled down to Siesta Key, Florida. I don't know if anybody's ever been there before. would highly recommend it. Beautiful beaches, Gulf of Mexico. We had a wonderful time. And obviously, we spent a lot of time on the beach. That's why you go there. And my kids, like many kids, love to build sandcastle. So I would sit on the beach, and when I wasn't, you know, saving my one-year-old from diving into the Gulf of Mexico, I would sit and I would watch my other children build sandcastles. And I would watch them with, with love and pride and joy in my heart as they ran around and laughed and built, but none of that was good enough for them. Over and over on this trip, I heard the same thing, dad, dad, dad. And then they would run up and say, look, look at what I've built. And, and what they were desiring in that moment wasn't just merely that I would turn my eyes in that direction. They were desiring to experience personally my love and my approval and my praise. Now, here's the, the key. I was already seeing them in that way. I was already feeling those things for them. But them coming to me and calling out my name put them in the position where they could actually experience my love in a more personal way, and then in turn, it would grow them into a deeper relationship with me. And that is ultimately what prayer is. It is a child coming to their father saying, Dad, Dad, look. And it is the father having the opportunity to show them, I see you, I love you, and you mean so much to me. And if you think about it, isn't that one of the deepest longings of the human heart, right? I wasn't going to share this when I originally put this together, but I, but I saw this last week and it just fits. I, I saw an example of this in our wider culture. I don't know if you care about this or if you've been watching, but we're, we're kind of near the end of the NBA playoffs. They're getting ready to have the championship series. And one of the stories during this time is the Miami Heat and a player named Jimmy Butler. He's just been driving his team to win. Um, and, and he had a, a conference with reporters, of course, after they won a game on Wednesday night. And he said this. This is Jimmy Butler, multi-million dollar celebrity NBA basketball star. He said, that's what anybody wants out of life. So what is it? Here's what he says. 
to be wanted, to be appreciated. And don't we all, isn't he right, don't we all yearn to be wanted, appreciated, recognized, valued, seen, and praised? And isn't the lack of being seen in that way at the root of why so many marriages fall apart, why so many people hate their jobs, why so many people grow up with so much emotional and psychological baggage from their childhoods? And listen, although our spouses and our employers and our parents have have a very profound effect on us, the way they treat us matters, the desire to be seen and valued and praised by them is really ultimately just a reflection of how much we deeply long to be seen and valued and praised by the God who made us. And prayer brings us to the place where we can see that God sees us. And when we come to that place, here's the beauty of it. Not only do we get to know God better, but because He sees us perfectly and then shows us perfectly who we are, we also come to know ourselves better. And all of that leads to growth and to change. So now we have a foundation for prayer. We know that we are praying to our heavenly and holy Father, and we know that the proper reward for doing so, the reason we do it, is to be seen and valued and loved and praised by Him. So now that we've laid that foundation, we can finally look at the Lord's Prayer and answer our last question today. What does real Christian prayer look like? So we're going to get a little more practical now, but continue to refer back to what we've learned. There are probably a million different ways that we could organize a teaching about the Lord's Prayer. But since I'm at the end and not the beginning of this teaching, what I want to do is is rather than just go line by line on the Lord's Prayer, I just want to kind of look at it as a whole, verses 9 through 13, and just draw out five quick observations. I know some of you heard five and you're thinking, oh my goodness, but they're going to be quick, I promise. Five quick observations from the Lord's Prayer that are going to give us this snapshot of what authentic Christian prayer should look like and then these are things that you can start putting into practice right away. And just a little, little side note, if you want some more practical tips and resources beyond what I have time to give you today, we, we've created a document that has just that that you can find on our website. It'll be linked right under the video of this sermon. So let's jump in. We're looking at the Lord's Prayer as a whole and drawing out these observations. Observation number one, what does real Christian prayer look like? Christian prayer should be regular and consistent. Look at verse 11 with me. In the middle of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. So it's pretty obvious by wording it this way, Jesus is strongly implying that we should be praying on a daily basis. And for Jesus' first century audience, that would have made perfect sense. Because in the first century, in that time and culture, those people, many of them were day laborers. They literally were paid at the end of each day for that day's work, and we're not guaranteed work for tomorrow. They literally were surviving on daily bread. And to make matters worse, the rich and powerful landowners that, that were employing them often would just delay paying them, and then if they complained about it, they would blacklist them from getting any further work. So these first century men and women, they, they would have no problem understanding just how urgent and necessary it would be to seek communion with and help from God every single day. And that's one of the reasons I think that we as 21st century American Christians have such a hard time being regular and consistent in prayer. Because 
we just don't live like that anymore, right? We don't feel that sense of urgency and desperation. And, and, and I don't say any of that to make us feel guilty because on one hand, we should just be thankful for that, that we don't have to live that way anymore. But that doesn't mean that prayer is any less urgent and important for us. So many of us may not be hurting for money or material goods, but any one of us is just a doctor's visit away from life-changing news. All of us have relationships that could be healthier, and every single one of us every single day face trials and temptations that threaten to devour our souls. So whether we realize it or not, we should all be desperate to be seen and heard and helped by our holy and heavenly Father. And we should, we should be so desperate that we should be making prayer a regular and consistent priority in our lives. And so before I go to the next four things here, I would just, I would just say this to you as, as a quick challenge. This week, I would encourage you to just set aside a day, a time, excuse me, a place, and a duration that best fits your life. It may not look the same as it would for everybody else. And then I want you to use these next four snapshots. Go on and look at that resource document I told you about. And I want to challenge you to commit to praying at least once a day for the next month. That's all I'm asking. Give it a shot once a day for the next month. Whether it's five or 50 minutes a day, your father wants to hear from you and you need to hear from him. Christian prayer should be regular and consistent. Number two, Christian prayer should be both private and communal. So earlier in the passage, I read to you verse 6 where Jesus is trying to emphasize how we should not pray to be praised by others. And so he tells his disciples, you go to your room and pray and shut the door in secret, he says in verse 6. So that would be private prayer. But it's very obvious that Jesus doesn't mean that we should only pray in private. And we know this because when you read the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13, over and over Jesus uses plural pronouns. He teaches us to pray, our Father, right? Give us daily bread, forgive us our sins, and so on and so forth. So we should also be having regular and consistent times of communal corporate prayer. The great reformer of the 16th century, John Calvin, I'm sure you've heard of him, he actually believed the opposite of what I think a lot of us believe. He believed that it is corporate and communal prayer and worship that shapes our private prayer and worship, and not vice versa. What that means is that if you want to get better at praying alone, you need to make sure you are regularly praying together with other believers. And I actually saw a beautiful picture of what this looks like, actually, right here in this church just a few weeks ago. Um, I won't say any names just to spare uh, embarrassment, but um, a friend of mine and his wife have two biological children, and they are seeking to adopt a third child. And this child has been with them for about a year now and is three years old. So a few weeks ago, we were back there in the foyer, and I, and I saw this child, this child they're seeking to adopt, run up to my friend and call him daddy. That's the same reaction the first service had. And that's the reaction I had, but inward, right? I didn't like let it out. It moved me, right? That moved me. And so later when my friend and I were, were alone, I asked him, I said, how, how did that happen? How did he start to call you Daddy, and he told me nobody taught him to say that. They didn't tell him to say that. He just saw his brother and sister saying it, so he began saying it too. He learned to speak to his father by listening to his brother and sister. And in the same way, if we want to learn to better speak to our heavenly father, we need to be listening to and learning from our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the second thing. Christian prayer should be private and communal. Number three, Christian prayer should be 
properly ordered. So you may have already noticed that, that the Lord's Prayer is divided into these six or seven you know, petitions, but it's also divided into two very distinct sections. In the first section, in the first couple of verses, we hear a lot about God and His kingdom and His holiness and His will. And over and over and over, we hear your, 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 right? Your name, your kingdom, your will. But in the second section, the last three verses, it all focuses on us and our needs. And that's why over and over, we hear about us, us, us. Give us, forgive us, lead us. And great Christian scholars throughout the centuries have agreed that this is no accident. Although, of course, there can be like exceptions to this rule, as a general rule, our routine times of Christian prayer should focus on God's glory first and our good second, which is totally contrary to the default nature of our hearts, isn't it? We, we rush to prayer to say, I need, I need, I need. But really what we need to stop and do is say, I praise, I love, I adore, you are great. And when you think about it, as hard as that is to like get into our hearts, it makes complete sense. Jesus told us in this passage, our Heavenly Father knows what we need before we ask. As a matter of fact, only He knows what is truly and ultimately good for us. As a matter of fact, He is the true and ultimate good that we need in our lives. We, that's, that's why we just learned that the main reason we pray, the proper reward for praying, is to be seen and valued and loved by Him. So, so before we start focusing on our perceived needs and what we think is good for us, we need to orient our hearts towards and have our hearts shaped by the one who is good and knows ultimately what is good for us. So Christian prayer should be properly ordered. Number four, Christian prayer should be biblical. Now, that is not an explicit idea in the Lord's Prayer, but it's definitely assumed. Many of you have, have heard me and, and Pastor Ryan and David um, quote Tim Keller from the stage before, um, a very big influence on our lives as Christians and on countless numbers of lives. You've you probably heard that he passed away um, just a day or two ago. And, and I say that as just a way of uh, giving public thanks for his ministry and preparing for this teaching. I, I was reading through his book on prayer, and um, he actually said in there that prayer is really just a joining of a conversation that God has already started, right? Well, think about it. Where does that conversation start? In Scripture. Think, think through the Lord's Prayer and all the things that we're told to pray. How can we know any of those things? Like, How can we know anything about our holy and heavenly Father so that we can ask His name to be honored as holy? How can we know that? Or how can we know what His kingdom should look like so that we can pray that it would come? How can we know what sin is so that we can ask forgiveness of it? And we could keep going and going. The point is that, that the way that we find out about those things is by reading them in God's revelation about them in the Bible. The Bible's where we find the vocabulary to pray. And that's why many great saints of Christian history and even today have paired Bible reading and prayer together. If you want a richer prayer life, pray the Bible. And there's probably no better place to start doing that than the Bible's very own book of prayers itself, the Psalms. So Christian prayer should be biblical. Here's our fifth and our last observation, and I'm going to start wrapping things up here. Christian prayer should be gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. Now, I realize that phrase is very trendy and familiar. We use it a lot here, so I think it would be helpful if I just defined it on the front end and then I'll show you how it connects to prayer. The gospel is the good news announcement that for everyone who submits to his rule, Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, 
has defeated once and for all sin, evil, and death through His own victorious death and resurrection. That's the gospel, the glorious gospel. Here's the problem. None of that is really in the Lord's Prayer, is it? We didn't hear any of that really in the Lord's Prayer. It didn't talk about His death. It didn't talk about His resurrection, right? So, so I just told you that Christian prayer, based on the Lord's Prayer, should be gospel-centered. So where do we actually see the gospel in the Lord's Prayer? And we actually see it right at the beginning. Listen again to verse 9, to the way Jesus tells us to begin prayer. He says, begin like this, our Father in heaven. And he said, I already heard that, Anthony. I told you earlier that the idea of addressing God directly as Father would have been very offensive to Jesus' first century audience. And, and you might hear that and think, well, that's a, very, that's a very outdated and pretentious view of God. But ultimately, without the gospel, it's true. And it's not because God is a snob. It's because we are rebels. Throughout the Old and the New Testaments, as hard as this is to hear, throughout the Old and the New Testaments, if you read them, God is never really called or referred to as the Father of just all people indiscriminately. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, writing in the New Testament, he says that because of our self-centered sinfulness, right, because we have failed to love and honor the God who so lovingly made us, because of all that, we are not by nature, children of God. He says that we are by nature children of God's wrath, which is sobering. I also told you earlier that we all have this desire in us to be seen and praised by the God who made us. But ironically, we also all deep down have this real fear of being seen for who we truly are because we know that we're not praiseworthy. We know that we don't measure up. God does see us, and God does love us, but without the gospel, without the gospel, excuse me, without the gospel, He cannot praise us. He must punish us. But the glorious news of the gospel, this is where the gospel begins to connect, is that out of what Scripture calls a great love and an immeasurable riches of His kindness, God has sent His one and only unique Son, to pay off our debts by living the life we should have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die. And it was his son's joy to do that. And by believing that, what Scripture teaches us is by believing that gospel, by, by submitting ourselves to that king, by putting our faith in him, now we get to be adopted into God's family, called his sons and daughters, given his spirit, so that now we can approach him in prayer as our Father. And so all Christian prayer must begin and be centered on that gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul, the same one who said, the same one who said that by nature we are children of his wrath apart from Christ, in Ephesians 2.18, he says it's through Jesus that we have access in one spirit to the Father. Not, not that we have to schedule appointments with him. We have free and unfettered access to the Father. It is only through Jesus and through his blood, through his death, on the cross, that we can have any confidence of approaching God in prayer, not simply as our creator and our master, but as our holy and heavenly Father who sees us for who we really are and yet is just as proud of us as he is of his own sinless son. Clothed with the righteousness of Jesus that comes through faith, in prayer we get to experience the same heart of the Father that he expressed to Jesus at his, at his baptism. You are my beloved son, 
and you are my beloved daughter. I am well pleased with you. I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team up. Um, I actually originally thought that I would just end the sermon there. We got to the gospel. We're pointing people to Christ. And I think we could end it there. But if I did that, I would be ignoring a question that I think is festering probably in many people's minds. It's certainly a question that if I were on the other side of this, I would have as well. And here it is. What about when prayer doesn't work like that? Right? I know there's more than a few people that can probably nod because they've had that experience. What, what do I do when I'm trying to follow Jesus and I approach my Father in prayer, desiring to experience Him seeing me and loving me and praising me, but instead, I walk away feeling like the only thing I experienced was a shut door? If that's you, the first thing I would say to you is that you're not alone. Christians, great, solid, mature Christians throughout the centuries have felt exactly like that. As a matter of fact, I quoted earlier C.S. Lewis, very mature, solid, intelligent Christian. After his wife died, he, ex- he, he described his experience of prayer almost exactly like that. Let me read it to you. Here's what he said about his experience of prayer. It was like a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. But even more important than C.S. Lewis's experience is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself felt like that. Out of all the prayers of Jesus that we have recorded in the Bible, there's only one time that he does not call God his Father. While hanging nailed to a Roman cross, bearing the crushing weight of wrath that we deserved, he cried out in prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those words of Jesus are actually a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. I want you to listen to the rest of verses 1 through 2 in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That is the psalm that was on Jesus' mind when he uttered his last prayer before he breathed his last breath. Even the sinless Son of God knows what it's like to approach God in prayer, unable to sense his closeness as Father and feeling like he is distant and inattentive. And again, the question is, what do we do when prayer feels like that? And I think the rest of Psalm 22 points us in the right direction. After the psalmist begins his prayer by basically saying prayer isn't working, He does something really remarkable. For 30 more verses, he just keeps praying. He just keeps praying. Why? How does he do that? When he just said it's not working, because ultimately he knows that no matter how he feels in that moment, he knows that God isn't really far away. He's not actually ignoring him. Listen to verse 24 from Psalm 22. The psalmist says, For God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And that is the answer for us today if we feel like prayer is so frustrating and pointless. We just keep praying because even when it feels like your father doesn't see you, he does. He has not hidden his face from you. 
How do you know that? Not by looking around at your circumstances, not even by looking inward for some emotional sense of God's presence, as good as that can be, but by looking at the cross of Christ. Because it is there on the cross through his death that Jesus paid for your sins so that they can never, ever separate you from your heavenly Father. It was in that moment as Jesus hung on that cross, when, when Scripture says that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, in that moment, God hid his face from his son so he would never have to hide his face from you. Your father sees you, and in Jesus, your father loves you and is pleased with you, even if you can't feel it right now. So just like Jesus himself said in the chapter right after this one on the Lord's Prayer, you keep asking, you keep seeking, and you keep knocking because one day that door that feels so shut will open again. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, you are so far beyond me, beyond my comprehension. You are so perfect and pure, and I am so messy, and yet I have the privilege of calling you Father. But I know that I don't have this privilege in and of myself. If I were left to my own devices, I would just be a beggar banging on a locked door, not because you wouldn't want me in, but because my sin would separate me from you. But you solved my problem so that I could have access to you by sending your own son to take my penalty and to give me his righteousness. And now you have filled me with your very own spirit, the spirit that teaches me to cry out, Abba, Father, what a glorious privilege. I don't just have to pray. I get to pray. And that's what I would ask for, for me and for my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, that you would change our mindsets about prayer through, through this teaching, through your word, through your spirit, through the church, that you would teach us how much of a privilege prayer is, how that it brings us to a place where we get to experience closeness with you, to be seen and valued and praised by you so that we can see ourselves better, so that we can grow. Help us to see these things and to be excited about prayer. And I just ask that by your Spirit, you would make us better at it. Your disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. And Lord, that's what we do now. In prayer, we say, teach us to pray so that we can be more like you and know you better. I want to end my prayer, Lord, just lifting up to you. Anyone that's here today or listening to my voice, that's still kind of skeptical about this. They haven't bought into it yet and, and they can't call God their father. My prayer for them is that you'd open their eyes to see how glorious and beautiful and heavenly and holy you really are, but at the same time to see how you have made a way for them to call you father and that by your spirit you would draw them and adopt them into your family so they can have that privilege. We love you and we thank you. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.